Yeah, I think that was it. Okay. Or we could just free ball it and see what happens. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with that term. Free balling? <laughs> you say I'm just going to keep saying it. You then. say it with such comfort and it bothers <laughs> We just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. (laughs) It's mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Welcome to Freudian Sips. The podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. And it's so good to have you with us today. We're back to our regular programming. I know it's been a weird few weeks. It has been. This is, I believe, legally episode 27. Legally. Legally. Yes. When we become very famous, we have to have legal numbers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> our lawyers are going to be very uptight about like, that. what number is this? <laughs> okay. We've got some exciting news before we start. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Share some exciting news. We've got merch. We're coming out with merchandise. And for old people like me, that means merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to put links to it on our social media and our website. But if you want to go to it directly, it's teespring.com slash stores slash Freudian Sips Pod. So if you want to go buy some merch, we have some really cool stuff. We have stickers and we have a whole bunch of apparel and we have uh, mugs that have Mm -hmm. our logo on it and tote bags. Yes. Yes. So just some really cool stuff. Phone cases. And lots lots of of great colors. Yeah. The shirts come in lots of great colors. Yeah, so. there's like darker colors, lighter colors, yeah. a wide variety of fun, fun stuff if you want to rep our cast. We would love... <laughs> You're so up and coming. You have all the lingo. <laughs> you call it a cast. You started that. Merch for the cast. Merch for the <laughs> Some sweet, sweet catch merch. We would love it merch. if you would wear one of our shirts and then you'd awesome. walk around and people would say, hey... That looks really cool. Hey, that shirt you guys tight. That's awesome. What? <laughs> Tell me about that. That's tubular. What is that? <laughs> I haven't heard that one for Radical. a while. Groovy. I can't think of any other very, you know, specifically aged cool words. Cool is one of those words that kind of goes forever. Oh, yeah. It's evergreen. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Because that's one of my never, words. Cool never goes out of style. Cool. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you will look very cool. Wearing our merch. Yes, and we want to extend a hello to our new people that have followed us in the last few weeks. And we also want to extend a thank you. We got a very nice message on Instagram from a follower in Costa Rica, which is awesome. Woohoo! Yeah, Adrian, if you're out there, hello. A specific shout out. So that was, it was very sweet. That was very, that warmed the cockles of our hearts. We Yes, we, we read it together and our cockles were warmed. <laughs> so many cockles. <laughs> We're warmed that We day. had twice the cockles twice. because we were <laughs> <Two> together. Cockles. <laughs> cackles of the cockles. Nope. <laughs> it's not, not a thing. That's not a thing. But that was very sweet. 
I'm always touched when people take time to yeah. do something like that because we're all so busy. Everybody's very busy. And so when somebody takes the time to send us a message. Oh, yeah, that that's the highlight of my week. And actually, we've yeah. gotten another one. I'll, I'll shout out uh, Dr. Goku on Twitter. Uh, followed us and has uh, been saying how how much he loves the show. So if you want to follow, he's also on a podcast called Saint Fourteen Project Podcast. So if you want to go check that out, that also deals with mental health issues. So mm-hmm. jives very nicely with ours. So if you're looking for more mental health content, there's that. If you don't have enough mental health content in your life, there are there are several things. No more than us talking about things that we talk about. Go there. We just talk out of our butts. Speaking of talking out of our butts, what are we talking about today, Mom? I'm not sure how to package this well. Uh, ologies. Ologies. Fun ologies. Yeah, kind of. We thought we would go a little light. Yeah. Can I just can I just say that that yeah. we thought you know the last couple of weeks were different. Yep. And so we kind of thought we would go light this week and just kind of have some fun and try to laugh a little and and go back to kind of being the girls, the fun wacky girls <laughs> that you love so much. <laughs> I wish they could see our hand motions because oh, we, we are to, we motioning. So we're just going to kind of talk about a couple of kind of wacky psychology <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Ologies, as you ologies. call it. Right, right. So what's our first ology? The first ology we're going to talk about is graphology. Where you make graphs in math class and they're really bad? That's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So this is basically the study of our handwriting. Using a person's handwriting, not only their signature, but all of their handwriting to kind of use that as... God, hopefully not only their signature. Oh my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) Exactly. There's a whole separate section about that. Oh no. Um, But we use this as a projective technique. Are you impressed with that word? That is very... A projective technique. What does that mean for us who are are not... (laughs) Not me. I know what it is. I just... For... (laughs) Projective means that we basically use something to. I'm having a heck of a time. You knew what the word is, but you don't know. To (laughs) project. Shoot. I should have written some kind of specific definition. It's like, you know, I want to know how you work. I want to know what your mental health is like. So I I give you an assessment. It's using things. When I hear projective, I hear tests that aren't necessarily super accurate because we use things that are concrete to predict things about someone um, without actually measuring those specific things, which is very subjective and very kind of out there most of the time. But projective things that some of you might be familiar with are something like the Rorschach 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 test. There's too many R's in that The ink blots where you look at them and then you kind of say what comes to mind or even, you know, those kind of assessments that hopefully give us some insight into your psyche. But as Anna said very well, it's, it doesn't do it quite as distinctly as some other assessments. So, right. yeah. So graphology is that. It's looking at our handwriting and um, giving us some idea about who we are, about what our mental health is like. Um, some people refer to it as the psychology of writing. And actually, if you want to be, you know, Anna usually does the history of everything, but today we're doing two separate ologies. So yeah. I have to do history, which kind of freaks me out. Do it. And there's like some really weird names that I'm going to totally butcher because Anna's really good at that, but I'm not. So I'm going to pretend. I'm not good at it at all. I, you are. Okay. You're so good. That's because I have a husband who studied linguistics who corrects me on the pronunciation before we start recording. <laughs> I should have. I should have had a meeting with him before this one. <laughs> just I'm just going to like slide through them, and right. if I offend someone, I sincerely apologize. But are these people still alive? Probably not. Well, then they're not because they've be been a, yeah, a long time ago. And actually, this is this is 
I think fascinating that the roots of graphology go all the way back. They date back to like 4 BC. Whoa. No, the 4th century. I should say that right. (laughs) Not for like four years. years ago. Four the century. Fourth century. So 300 on. (sighs) (laughs) This might be a tough podcast for me. (laughs) I'm still getting my sea legs back. That that doesn't even make sense. Sure. No, that's okay. Okay. But we're talking about the Chinese who used that in the fourth century. You know what's thrown me? It's it's a rumen. A rumen. (laughs) Can we just start over? It's a Roman numeral. I have to try to... Oh, it's a Roman numeral. Yeah. I yeah. So every time I see a Roman numeral, I'm like... They're saying blah, 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 they're using Roman numerals it. for fourth century? Yeah. That's weird. They're trying to throw me, I guess. The fourth I century. Guess. But it's a... It's an I and a I v. and a V. That's okay. fourth, right? That's fourth. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't so glad I'm educated. Um, <laughs> I have a master's degree. <laughs> we didn't learn Roman. We didn't take Roman numerology. And um, we kind of refer back to a Chinese philosopher who is supposedly pretty famous, and I'm going to like massacre his name, but Kuo Zhou Shu. I've never heard that name before. And he was a philosopher. This is a direct quote from him, supposedly. Although if you live that long ago, it kind of strikes me it's that that'd be hard to... At this point. But yeah. Handwriting inevitably shows whether it comes from a noble mind or from a vulgar person. Ooh, those are the two options. You're either noble, mm, or, noble vulgar. or vulgar. <laughs> yeah. No in between. That's why you were That's uncomfortable with the words I was using before, because <laughs> yes, you're noble. I am I'm noble. vulgar. <laughs> I don't think that's really true. But anyway, and we can, you know, Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that, I name. Know that name. I even actually said that one right. Yeah. 384 to 322 BC. He often talked about that there was a bond between writing and thinking and that writing was kind of a symbolism of what was going on in our mental experience. So not only just like what we wrote, but how we wrote it, like the shapes we used. And- I can I can buy into that a little bit. I'm probably skipping ahead, though. You'll probably talk about Because I mean, like You can when- do that because I don't, <laughs> I don't well, know what the heck I'm well like when I write I don't just have one kind of writing like it's either like more neat or more sloppy and that kind of depends on how I'm feeling in a Mm -hmm. day Mm -hmm. so I can see it from that angle and we will get back into that again in just a couple of moments Um, I'm going to kind of skip ahead. The Egyptians used it. The Romans used it. And when I say used it, I mean graphology, that they would look at someone's, the way someone communicated in writing. And we have to remember that, you know, in those early, early, early times, it's not like everybody wrote. It's not like everybody would sit down and write. Look at your hieroglyphs. Like, like how did you draw the people? And like, (laughs) see what that meant about your mental state. Did you press hard on the rocks (laughs) when you were carving? Or did you? That cat looks very mad. What are you feeling? They say that, technically speaking, probably the first graphologist who actually started studying people's handwriting was, I will never get this right. <laughs> His first name is Prosper, which I think is interesting. That's pretty cool. Aldorisius. Okay. Aldorisius. I practiced that name? one. Yes. And he invented what he titled ideography. Whereabouts was this? Whenabouts? I have no idea. Okay. A gajillion years ago. All right. Sometimes I know that it was before it was before 1600 because then I'm going to kind of skip on to the Italian professor of philosophy who basically officially said this is a science. We're gonna we're gonna call this a science of of graphology, and he founded the School of Graphology of Paris. His name was and see I know that I should probably roll an L or an R or something. (laughs) It looks like Camillo Baldo. 
Okay. Yeah, I think... Uh, 1622. Right. Baldo. If I say it like Italian... He's okay. He's dead. But, you know, God rest his soul because... <laughs> <laughs> everything that he wrote was in another language. <laughs> it's like paragraphs. Paragraphs that are in other languages. But, but this he is, spoke the language. <laughs> it was his language. It was his language. So he didn't give a crap if I couldn't read it. <laughs> But this is what he said. How to know through a handwritten letter the personality and the nature of the author. That was the title of his book that he wrote all about that. About, you know, basically studying person's handwriting. And there are lots of other names that I'm not going to give you right now. Because like all science techniques and, and as we've talked about psychology theories, they have evolved and more people have jumped in and said, hey, let's add this and hey, let's add that. Sure. I will mention one particular name because he's pretty important Ludwig <laughs> Ludwig Klages who lived from 1872 to 1956 oh, all right. not too long ago yeah. he was a German philosopher surprise surprise Ludwig <laughs> um, and he's the one who actually applied the psychological theories of Gestalt oh to graphology so it's which we like, have briefly mentioned yes. on the podcast before but not gone too deep into it right and then um, the very last name I will mention is Max Pulver, who lived from 1889 to 1952. And he uh, introduced psychoanalysis into graphology okay. and developed a theory of the symbolism of space, which is a big part of, of studying graphology. Okay. All that doesn't really make a whole hill of beans except to us. <laughs> <laughs> that you know like we look at this like okay seriously you're gonna tell me what my personality right. is like by looking at my handwriting right. it's like a buzzfeed quiz like, both the things we're gonna be talking about today <laughs> were kind of buzzfeed quizzy. that's a good way to say it that's a very good way to say it however even to this day especially in criminology they use these techniques you know to try to not only to find so it hasn't like been disproven and gone by the wayside no it kind of comes and goes comes and goes and even today they still consider that there are different schools of thought um the german school of thought with graphology is focused on the gestaltic ideas specifically you know like studying the shapes and the way that the writer uses the page and that type of thing the one that's the most popular and is used by people who study crime and stuff is called the emotional school which I think this is because this is, I had to drop our boy Freud comes in here for a moment <laughs> because one of the techniques that's studied in the emotional school is called uh, <laughs> laps, <laughs> lapsus colomy. Lapsus colomy. Latin? Which means slip of the pen. It's Latin, right? I don't know. I don't know. You're talking to someone who knows no Latin. <laughs> okay, okay, but, okay. The, but the other word that they talk about is lapis linguae. Which would be like a slip of the tongue, slip of words, which is a Freudian slip. Oh. Ah. So it's kind of the same idea that... (laughs) Lapis drinke is Freudian (laughs) slip. So when we do a Freudian slip, we talked about this way back in episode one, where we say something that reflects what's actually in our subconscious and we were trying to perhaps hide in some way, and it comes out by something we say, a Freudian slip. When you say one thing, but you mean your mother. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Thank you. Scientists who believe in this type of study believe that we do that with our handwriting, that we might be trying to hide certain things, but if you look at the person's handwriting, you can kind of see those tendencies. So when we talk about this, when we're talking about graphology, we're literally just talking about the way your handwriting looks. We're not talking about like the words you use, right? No, that's exactly right. Because I would say that would say more about your mental state than your handwriting that's a different i think that's i don't know it's what a that's different it's a that's a wordology word-ology. i don't know what it's some kind of different yeah, yeah i would the but con- it doesn't, it's not included in the this. text nope this is just how it looks how you how hard you press when you write how much space there are between your letters and your words there's a whole subset of where do you write on the page like if i would give really? you a piece of paper and say write a sentence on this page <laughs> so like when the declaration of independence was being signed and john hancock <laughs> took like <laughs> third of the space they're like this there's, dude's a dick there's a lot to be said <laughs> uh-huh, about that uh-huh. this man's mm-hmm, like just mm-hmm. a jerk as long as we've tied to freud in this emotional school of graphology we're also tying to and my brain is uh, having a air bubble okay um archetypes young young because there are there's part of the study of graphology that says that our subconscious is tied to certain archaic symbols. Um, it's it's oh, that whole you know yeah, that we're yeah. you know we, what's come before us is part of our it's subconscious, the Creed bit. right? And so part of that is when you're looking at. So let's say I did give you a piece of paper and I said write a sentence on this piece of paper. Okay. And and a the graphologist. Quick, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. I wrote it. <laughs> So they would look at... <laughs> the look my mom just gave you was filled with disappointment. No, all I, I, all I thought about it in that, in that brief second was that's some kind of really educational shit that no, she just poured it's... out. And I'm thinking of that book we used to read when you were a little kid, no, Fox it, in a Box. Or oh, what? no. Quick Brown Fox, Fox and Socks. the Lazy Dog just has all the letters in the, the language. Oh, where did you learn that? In one of your higher I was education? a graphic design major mm. for a while. So they use that as like seeing how all the letters look in your font. Man, I just, I learned something new from you every time we do a podcast. <laughs> That's flipping amazing. I learn new things from you anyway, even when we're not doing a podcast. Stop it. She's my girl. You're making me blush. <laughs> so these ar- archaic symbols that are in our subconscious supposedly show themselves when we, when we write. Okay. Like... Anything that's up, like that's either opened upward or to the top of the page, could reflect anything like having a to do with capital W spirituality and um, being optimistic. Like it, there are so many twists. The thing that I noticed when I was reading it was like we've talked about this before when we talked about theories and stuff. You read something on this page that says, "Okay, if you do this." with your writing then it means this and the exact same thing on another page means something different so i think there's a lot of variations right but there's there's so many things (laughs) (laughs) i did a lot of that today aren't i (sighs) so let me just kind of jump into the middle of like okay if you were looking at i know i want to do this first because you brought this up and i agree with this the problem i have with this is if I'm having a bad day, I write differently than yeah. if I'm not having a bad day. Or if I'm in a hurry. If I just need to jot something down real exactly. quick, it's going to look really different than if I take time and right. write it. So one of the things that they talk about is specifically your signature. And they say, you know, like, <laughs> if your signature is illegible, 
it can mean either that you're trying to hide things, you don't want someone to really actually know who you really are, or it could mean that you like um, are, are very closed and you don't share much. If you write very clearly, like somebody could very easily read what your name Just is. Just in the signature. Mm-hmm. Just the signature I'm talking about now. One of the things they say that that means is that you're organized and that you are open and honest. You want people to know the truth about you, those kind of things. Still, with just the signature, they say things like if, you know, like you brought up a great example with John Hancock. If it's if it takes up a lot of space, you yeah. know, that you have issues with uh, your ego. and Or if you write very small, then you have self-esteem problems. You have other issues with right. your ego. <laughs> like, uh, my signature is hot garbage. But that's because I need to sign, like, 15 things a day. Right. Like, I do progress notes, and I, I, like, I print out different things that I need to sign, like, eight of at a time. So I just do it really fast to get right. it over with. Exactly. I mean... Maybe I'm just not thinking of it critically enough, but I don't think that says something about my personality. And I think may say I'm lazy. I'll I'll go with that. I think that a lot of people do that. A lot of people have a signature. I mean, just thinking about things that I have people sign. Very often, I can't read their handwriting. You know, I mean, and it's different than when you You, write. Yeah, you can tell there's an A in my name, and you can tell there's a K in my name. That's Mm -hmm. it. So just so that is very specific, though. They say they don't just study your signature because your signature is unique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a different, it's a kind of a whole different study unto itself. Right. When they look at your handwriting, specifically letters that tell a lot about us are G T A D R M. G T A D R M. And I'm not going to go through all of these things, but just the idea that they look at the size of the letters. Um, and again, this kind of goes back to that if you have really large letters, it's it's a sign that you're outgoing and sociable. You like being the center of attention. If you have small letters, you might be shy and timid. Average letters, I don't know how they figure that out. <laughs> Average letters mean that the person is well-adjusted and adaptable. Well, that's... So, like, if you gave me a blank piece of paper... Right. I would probably write, like, on a lined piece of paper because that's how we learn to write. As kids. And that's the other thing that, that's a great point. That's the other thing I wanted to say. Besides just being in a different mood on different days, we were taught a specific way to write. And mm-hmm. so I completely agree with you. If someone gave me a piece of paper and said, write on this paper, I would probably start on the on the left margin right. and write. However, a graphologist would say, if you start toward the left, you're either dwelling in the past or perhaps you're pessimistic. <sighs> if you would write further toward the right your future thinking we'll see and that's like so if someone said okay here's a piece of paper write a list of what you're gonna do today then Mm -hmm. on the top I would write to-do list in the center (laughs) like I it depends on what I'm writing it depends on like if someone just gave me a piece of paper and said write something I'd be like what 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 do you want me to write right and this reminds me of and we've kind of I think talked about this a little bit another projective assessment Mm -hmm. is draw a person and when someone hands you a piece of paper and right. just says, draw a person to you, and you're like, okay, what, where, how, what, right. you know, it's very which we hard. Did a, we did a cool, an episode, which was at six, I think, um, when we talked about alcohol in the brain. We were actually out of town at an art therapy conference, mm-hmm. and we learned something, a really cool one that was like, draw a stick figure. And then you did like different steps that you mm-hmm. added different things to the picture, which I thought was really cool because it started with a very simple base, like a very, and each instruction was very linear and very structured. Mm-hmm. So you could follow it very well. I thought that was cool. I like that better than just the 
Just, yeah. Yeah. Just Open-ended prompts are bad. Right. Okay, just a few other notes about how they will read our handwriting is they'll look for the gaps. <laughs> the aliens, how the aliens will read our handwriting when they come to abduct us. <laughs> yeah. I think they're far beyond this, but... Um, <laughs> they don't give shit. <laughs> they, don't, they just probe us and figure it all out. <laughs> just sticks up number bus and send us on our way. Um, they examine the... I don't know who they are. The graphologists who <laughs> the come graphologists. to get us. <laughs> yeah. They look at the gaps between our words and our letters. So like if you scrunch your words together, it kind of means you're uptight. If In graphic you, design, we call that kerning. How close letters are to each other. Kerning? Kerning. K-E-R-N-I-N-G. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> See, I learned another thing. <laughs> I'm gonna start making a list, Anna Marie. Right, right. It kind of talks about when you when you have space, when you take up a lot of space between your letters, that you kind of want to Expand push yourself it. out there. Yeah, yeah, and that you're independent and or, free, or free you, flowing. Or if your your space between your letters gets really small, it's because you ran out of space on the line and you got to scrunch it really hard. The or next, you're writing like a happy birthday sign and, and you're you like, run out of room. happy and then you're like oh shit Our birthday. and the Y has to be yeah, down the at the, y is like in the corner down a little bit oh I hate when that happens <laughs> but it obviously does okay so th- there's also things about like I don't know about you but when I write I do half cursive and half printing. Oh, yeah. It's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's not. <laughs> well, it, it depends on what you read. I read that that means you're very creative. I've read that as well. The other side yeah. of it is that you can't focus. <laughs> like, I mean. Creative people can't freaking yeah. focus. Let's just give us that. It could be both. <laughs> um, if you cross your T with a nice long, you know, like a big long oh, like, line. Whoosh, yeah, because my last name has a T in it. Oh, so yeah. I always kind of write it and then I went whoosh, with the T. You that T pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. It indicates enthusiasm and determination. <laughs> but if you do like a little tiny short at the top of your T, you have apathy and lack of determination. Is there nothing that's just like, if you do this, then you're perfectly normal. It's like everything no. that you're listing I mean, is like, and if you do opposite. it this way, you have this pathology. If you do it the other way, you have a different no, pathology. No, you're all, everybody has something. <laughs> this just proves it. Everybody has something. You can figure out what it is by looking at how you'd cross your T's. If you cross your T's very high on the line, it means you have high goals and high self-esteem. But if you cross it low, you know what that means. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, man. Cross it low. So you might as sad. well go live in the garbage. And how you make your O's makes a, is a pretty important kind of thing. If you make your O, whether it's cursive or printing, if you leave your O open, like you don't close your O, then you like, you then really. Then it's you and you need you, to learn how to write. You misspelled your word. <laughs> It's kind of like you're inviting people to come in and investigate you. You're an open book. You're an open book and an open O. They share secrets well. It's one of the things that's written here. But if you close your O, which just basically means that you do the right thing. It you says, write correctly. It says you treasure your privacy and you may tend toward introversion. Or you just know how to print correctly. Yeah. This you is, just know that you're writing it. Oh, and this is really you. upsetting the this teacher in me. <laughs> <laughs> the teacher in me is getting very pissed off. How often did you actually teach handwriting or like penmanship? When I taught third grade, I taught cursive 
And I didn't really teach younger than that to teach. I mean, like in, in kindergarten, that's not true. That was a total lie I just told. <laughs> when I ta- taught kindergarten, we would learn well, yeah, our printing. Learn letters. Yeah, we yeah. learned. And we would have the three little lines. Sure. And, you know, you have the uppercase uh-huh. and the f- the tall letters and the fall letters. And well, the- and, and you, I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead that you were going to mention this later, but you brought this up when we were talking about this episode, which is that, we all learn from different people how to write. So if I'm learning how to write my A, if I'm learning from someone who writes like a like a curved swoop and then across mm-hmm. versus like a point and then across. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so it reflects who, who our teachers yeah. were. And, 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 the, and how your parents write. And how. Exactly. And I was thinking that too with the slants because like if you, if you write in cursive and then look at your handwriting, and this is one that's very, every source I looked at said kind of the same thing. So if you slant toward the right, which you should, if, if you, especially if you're taught in a Catholic school, you, <laughs> you slant toward the right if you're right-handed. You slant toward the left uh-huh. if you're left-handed. So, but if you... So if sl- you go to a Catholic school, it's not like they'll <laughs> smack, smack you on the hand for doing left-handed things? I'm going to bring back to that in just a minute. <laughs> but if you slant to the right, you're supposed to be, again, you're supposed to be more outgoing and more optimistic if you oh, slant yeah, toward does, the left. That- that's a really good point for all of this about mm-hmm. how you write versus right-handed, mm-hmm. left-handed. There's also like if you don't slant at all. Like if your letters like are upright, real up yeah. and down, it means that you're kind of rigid and you don't, you know, you're probably very structured and very rigid. You don't give much. Okay. So, okay, when graphologists, all the graphologists that live out there in mm-hmm. the world, do, do they make you write like an entire page or do they make you write like a, like how much text do they take as a sample size? They, you know what the I mean? more the better. Okay. And, and when you say that, it's like probably if a graphologist is studying your handwriting, it's not like they say, here, sit down and write this. They try to take things you've already written without knowing it was going to be sure. analyzed. Yeah. So, and that's where the criminology comes in. I was just going to say the criminology. Yeah. I, I watched a lot of criminal shows. <laughs> yes. And so like, I, I do know that they like compare to see if like oh was this note written by this person mm-hmm. i wouldn't call it graphology i would just call that comparison but one of the things it. that they look for is if there's an abrupt change in handwriting and this is a mental you know to show that perhaps there was a mental illness at some point or a break that. in a personality but those are more broad those are more right. night, not looking at like how i write my o's you right. know right like that's like if my handwriting suddenly gets like jagged and like uh-huh. shaky i mean maybe there's something going on if there's a marked change right I, I want to go back to the slanting for just a minute because I am a right-handed person who did go to a Catholic school, and I, and this is a very personal story, and I have to share it with you. Um, I think that part of I my handwriting is terrible. My it's you don't have that bad. Well, like and that's terrible to be a teacher and have bad handwriting. You don't and, have bad handwriting. <laughs> Thanks, Anna, for the validation. Yeah, that is cute. <laughs> but when I was in fifth grade. And I was one of those kids that was kind of the teacher's pet a lot. Sure. Because I sure. I like yeah. sucking up and getting good <laughs> grades. So, yeah. I was kind of the pet for, for, for several years. But in fifth grade, we had this nun. And God rest her soul, because I'm pretty sure she's gone. Her name was Sister Antonella. nuns die. Which sounds like, you know, pretty Rigid. mean. Pretty mean dude. And actually, we had her two different years, which is very scary. But in the fifth grade, I was used to being the pet. But there was this other girl who suddenly I was in competition with. (laughs) She was bright. She was smart. And I noticed that sister kind of liked her better. Well, this other girl was left-handed. 
And so I noticed, and I can look back, and this is, a graphologist would have a party with this. I can look back at like my papers from the fourth grade and my papers from the fifth grade and my handwriting changed significantly. It went from a clear right slant, because we were taught we should slant, to a clear left slant. And then about the end of sixth grade, it's straight up. And now nowadays it's usually pretty straight I kind of slant a little to the right but it's straight but what I'm saying is I know specifically what happened to me I wanted to be like this girl because sister was showing her more attention but it backfired on me because my handwriting started getting worse and sister was very picky and I have very clear memories (laughs) that I've shared with my kids so they know this one that sister Antonella would walk around when we did our handwriting because in those days we would do penmanship papers yeah and she'd walk around and correct people's you know the way they were holding their pencil and stuff and she would oh in my memory it's like every day I know it really wasn't but it feels like it she had very pointy fingernails (laughs) And she would poke me in the top of my head and say, Bonnie, your handwriting is abominable. And she would poke it like several times. Sometimes I would have little scabs oh on the top God. of my head. <laughs> yeah, those stories about those old Catholic school days. Yeah. So, you know. But and the fifth grade seems very, like when you talk about the story, kid. I know I've, I've pictured like a first or second grader. No, the fifth grade's a big no, kid. man. Yeah. Yikes. So, Yikes. So I was having all this, this negative. With my handwriting, and I think it it really literally affected how I write. So this whole idea of graphology, I guess, you know, a a graphologist could look at my handwriting and see that change and say, see, we can see that she had a traumatic time during this time and didn't know who the hell (laughs) she was. She wanted to be this other girl. So yeah. But overall, the biggest thing that they talked about was the pressure that we use when we write. And if you press real hard, that you're more determined or you're more full of emotion or anger. I I can see that because sort of the same thing happens in like studying art history Mm -hmm. and seeing like especially like the the strokes of of paintings and stuff like that where like if you look at Starry Night, like the Vincent Van Gogh painting, then it's like the strokes are really like hard but swooping and it's sort of you can infer a little bit about his mental state from that. Exactly. I'd be more willing to buy that than like if you close your O's, you know. Right. (laughs) But in modern modern world graphologists are mostly used in criminology in studying hmm. and in trying to find mental illness in in that's criminals yeah that's where it's used most well because of all. most people type hashtag millennials am i right <laughs> exactly <laughs> i'm not saying a word but, but you know our our handwriting though is a, whether it's good or bad it's part of who we are yeah and so, you know, I, one of the things that I really like these days is that people are getting tattoos with the handwriting oh, of someone yeah. they loved, you know, yeah, like love yeah. mom yeah. or whatever. I've seen a lot of those. Yeah. Those are cool. And that shows that we have a real link to each other by knowing each other's handwriting. Because um, it is so individual. It's sure. Us. And you see that person's handwriting, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, that I know mom's this person handwriting. wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think that's the cherry I'll put on the top is that, yes, it is. It does reflect our personality a bit, perhaps not as specifically as graphologists would want us to, to right. study and know. Um, but it is kind of part of our self-awareness that we always talk about. <laughs> if you know, you know that you write a certain way or when you're stressed, you write a certain way or whatever. So, yeah. Okay, so that's graphology. blah da Graphology. <laughs> what do you got? I've got something very interesting, but I would like us to take a quick break before we get into it. Okay. Okay, pause. We will be right back. Welcome back. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> Easy as pie. Part two of ologies. 
ologies and what's Second mine half. mom do you remember mine phrenology phrenology which uh you probably know by seeing like phrenology head busts like those little kind of statues with the head the and parts. The, the little mm-hmm. parts in it mm-hmm. that is a phrenology head mm-hmm. and <laughs> y'all gotta buggle up because phrenology is some crazy stuff there's some weird stuff that goes into phrenology so our story begins briefly with ancient greek physician hippocrates ah he of the ocratic oath he originated the thought that the brain was the control center of the body because previously it had been thought that the heart was the center of the body because the heart is sort of physically centrally located. Mm-hmm. And so people thought that the heart was the center of everything, that our thought came from the heart and everything mm. else came from the heart. But but Hippocrates said, no, the brain, that the big mushy organ that's in our head is actually... <laughs> the sack of meat. Uh, the big sack of meat that's in our head is... We were returned to the sack of meat idea. <laughs> that is going to be a common theme. Uh, and another physician, uh, Galen of the time, supported this and said that, yes, the, the brain is responsible for, like, the thought that we have and the control of our body. So Good it, for those guys. They got exactly, it right. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's weird to look at that kind of ancient Greek stuff and see how many people had it right that we know now is correct, mm-hmm. but that they were kind of, like, poo-pooed for that a little bit. But we know that Hippocrates had the right idea. That's why we named an oath after him, I guess. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so after that, we skip a lot of time to about 1775, where a Swiss pastor, Johann Kaspar Lavater, say that name back for me. Pastor Lavater. Pastor Lavater. The only unimportant part of that name, because <laughs> Johann Kaspar will come back. Oh, okay. Uh, he pioneered something called physiognomy. Which is interesting enough that I feel like I want to do a whole episode on that too. But this is assessing a person's character or personality from their outward appearance. So how they look outwardly. And like, we still sort of do this. I mean, that's just the We whole judge each other by the way we look. Yeah. yeah. So like seeing a tall, burly dude and assuming he's kind of rough and tumble. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. So we still sort of do this. There's a lot to unpack with physiognomy. But we're going to move on from it and not spend too much time on it. Just know that physiognomy is involved with phrenology as we move on. So on phrenology, Lavater said in his work on physiognomy, hilariously titled The Pocket Lavater when translated. It's <laughs> like, you pull them out of your pocket. Hey, what do you think about what that guy looks like, man? Give us your advice. Hey, <laughs> what do you say? He said, of the forehead, when the forehead is perfectly perpendicular from the hair to the eyebrows, it denotes an utter deficiency of understanding. So already with physiognomy, with how people look, he was looking at how the head looked and inferring things about how the brain worked based on that. So that's kind of not like the basis of phrenology, but sort of the same idea. So after that, we go to the big man himself, Franz Joseph Gall. And he's like the father of phrenology. He never called himself that, but I think you're going to so call him fathers. that. I'm going to call him that. <laughs> <laughs> he was a German physician in the late 1700s who lectured on organology, so like the organs, uh-huh. um, and cranioscopy, which is reading the skull's shape as it pertains to the individual. And huh. Gall, even though he kind of pioneered this, this. I want to call it a science. I don't want to give it that. But but phrenology. Theory, yes. He never called it phrenology. He had a collaborator, Johann Gaspar Spursheim. So apparently just if your name is Johann Gaspar, Johann. Or Kaspar, 
you're going to go into phrenology. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I don't write the rules. But Spursheim coined the term phrenology. He was the one that kind of started that. In 1809, Gall wrote his principal work that had the basic tenets of phrenology in it. And can I read you the name? Because it's great. Please do. Okay. It's called The Anatomy and Physiology of the Nervous System in General and of the Brain in Particular with Observations Upon the Possibility of Ascertaining the Several Intellectual and Moral Dispositions of Man and Animal by the Configuration of Their Heads. (laughs) (laughs) And you did not take a breath during the whole time. You don't need more words. That's just the whole, that's the whole work. That's just the title. Oh, the title took up the whole cover, the whole front page cover. five lines in my notes. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so bad. Someone needed to tell him about titling simply. He's like, hey, can you read, can you read my book? And they like look at the title and they're like, Franz, I don't, I don't, I think we need to workshop this a little (laughs) oh my gosh okay so in this work he talked about some of the tenets and one of them was the brain is not homogenous but several different mental organs with specific functions (laughs) so (laughs) i'm making my brain hurt the brain's not one big meat sack it's several tiny meat sacks in a trench coat trying to get into an (laughs) r-rated movie (laughs) oh geez (laughs) He thought there were like specific, I mean, like you could take one part out and that was your like hope part. You Uh know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. And the size of each individual organ, I'm going to keep using the word organ because that's how they used it, even though it's going to start sounding weird. Uh, So the size of each individual organ is indicative of the power or strength of that organ's uh, faculties. So if you have like a good sports organ... A big sports organ, then you're big. It is indicative. It's indicative Um. of good sports. Good sports. Having a big organ. And he also... (laughs) Sorry. Bigger is better, baby. I'm going to my sixth grade brain. (laughs) Size matters in phrenology. So since the skull, he said, ossifies over brains in infancy... Then we can tell by the shape of the skull how, like, the meat brain works underneath of it. Ah. Because if your skull has, like, a lump in a certain place, that means the organ underneath of it is bigger and the skull had to ossify Mm. over it. Mm. Yes. So there's, it's weird, like, there's things that do make sense because that's, that is how the skull works when we're babies, but that's not how the brain works at all. No, it's not. (laughs) Can I just add? Can confirm. Can confirm. (laughs) So it was actually Spursheim, Gall's collaborator, that took this idea and spread it around Europe and America in the early and mid 1800s. It wasn't like a fringe thing either. It, it wasn't like, oh, there's this weird kind of pocket of people who believe in phrenology. It was pretty big. At this time, scientific knowledge was seen as indicating sophistication and like being modern. And so pamphlets were cheap and they could be printed really easily. So there were a lot of them. Uh, scientific lectures were being used as a form of entertainment. So the middle hmm. class and the working class latched on to phrenology as like a... This is a scientific thing that we can talk about and we can understand so we can look like we are more sophisticated because we know about it. Mm. Yes. So this was at a time um, when the scientific method and standards for 
reliable evidence were but a twinkle in scientists' eye. <laughs> exactly. They did not matter. Aww. So this was seen as perfectly respectable. And the Phrenological Society of Edinburgh was one of the first things to really give the theory credibility. It was kind of one of the first groups that was formed with the with the intent of, yes, we are supporting this we are saying that this is a science and we're going to really take it to a next level and it had many really influential people there was uh there were publishers there was like an astronomer there was an environmentalist hmm. so there were a lot of really big people from a lot of different uh vocations kind of involved in this that were that were saying that this was something credible that mm-hmm. should be should be looked at as something real that we should listen to wow i guess okay so by 1840, there were over 28, which cracks me up, over 28. So 29? 29. <laughs> just, just say the number. Over 28 phrenological societies. <laughs> oh, jeez. It'd be funny if it was, I mean, it, like you would say. <laughs> over 29? It's over 27 over 20, and a half. Yeah, it's over yeah, 30, you have but to not, go to a it's round over, number. yeah. Over 28. 29. That is how many they meant. <laughs> Over 28 phrenological societies in London, uh, and they had over a thousand members. So wow. I know they were pretty big. I mean, a thousand doesn't seem like a lot when we talk about like the world population. But, but this is the olden days. This is the olden. <laughs> there were only like three thousand people on the world at that point. I think it's not like you could have a thousand followers on Instagram. No. <laughs> Um, specifically when it came to psychology, phrenology was seen as a method of self-insight, a method to look at how you, you functioned. Build your self-awareness. Basically, yes. That's our page. We're not, no, we're not, we're not giving credit to phrenology. We're not, we're not not, endorsing. We're not endorsing it. (laughs) But people liked it because it was a way to put some, what they saw as concrete and biological bases in the process of self-insight mm-hmm. so they were able to instead of just having to sit in a counselor's office and do the horrible work of talking through your problems they were like i can just feel my head and know what i'm about <laughs> it's fine i can just feel the bumps on my head so real quick some other notable phrenologists lorenzo fowler and orson fowler these were american brothers who set up a phrenology business in new york city with their partner samuel wells this was called, appropriately, Fowler and Wells. <laughs> that was a creative name. I know. Um, and actually, so I mentioned the phrenology bus. So if you're ever in like uh, an antique shop and you see a genuine phrenology bust, Fowler and Wells is probably where it came from because they mm. produced a lot of those phrenology busts and, and disseminated them across America, basically. So if you find one that's genuine, the genuine article, that's probably where it came from. And they're kind of vogue. I mean, like you see a lot, like in movies, you kind of know it's a psychologist because mm-hmm. they have a phrenology bus sitting on their desk. I want one of those. I do too. I know. So if you see an antique phrenology bust, send it to us. Yeah. <laughs> Mail it to us. <laughs> But this is actually where they came from, if they're in America. And according to Wikipedia, this is a bit of a side note, Orson Fowler was known for his octagonal house. Really? And he made that a popular uh, thing. Octagonal houses. So good for good for him. My research I, said that several times. It was like... Like that was a was, big deal. He was known he for his octagonal idea. house. It's like... Okay. <laughs> I don't... All of his research meant nothing right. compared All to right. his house. Can we talk about the phrenology thing more or not? Or So yes, oh, Orson really Fowler, a tagging okay. house. 
And there was also John Elliotson, who was a heart specialist who became a phrenologist in the 1840s. He was also a mesmerist. Oh, flashback, flashback. Episode 16, if you want to learn about mesmerism. Mm. And he made this Frankenstein of the two called, I'm not kidding you, Frenomesmerism. Mesmerism. <laughs> say that three times fast. Frenomesmerism. I can't even say it one time. So he like combined, I don't, I don't know, I didn't read a lot about this. What's in my head is he put people into a mesmeric trance and then he like felt the bumps on their head. <laughs> Which seems like an invasion of privacy. I know. And I'm like, going to put you okay, under before fine, I feel I'll your head. I'll go under. I'll watch your watch or whatever. But can you like not touch my head, please? Can you not? And he was like, no, I'm still going to touch your head. I'm going to feel all up on your head. So unfortunately for John Elliotson, phrenology was already being discredited by the 1840s. Mm. Womp womp. But... <laughs> But part of this was that phrenologists couldn't agree on uh, meat sack theories, is what I'm going to call them. So how many little brains made up the big brain? Uh Uh, Where to find specific organs? Gaul had 27 miniature organs. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot, but actually people later on had more. I mean, they added some. So Mm -hmm. I think I I saw like 40 or 45 as kind of the top. Yeah. A lot going on. So they couldn't agree on how many were actually in the brain and stuff like that. So it was kind of like, well, if people Hmm. in the science can't even agree on it, then it's not good for the credibility. Also, experiments were being done on pigeons where they found that loss of parts of the brain did not cause loss of function. I don't know because I didn't want to go into a whole, you know dog saliva exactly thing. that's what i'm thinking right uh, now where if they like took inhumane the to animals yeah stuff. i don't know i don't know the specifics on that but when they did take the parts of the brain out they either found that there was no loss of function or they found that if there was a loss of function it wasn't like it lost function in the part that gall said there would be or other right. phrenologists said right. there would be it was just kind of it was it was less clear than that basically because the brain is very complex Ironically, the popularity of phrenology in the middle and lower classes also contributed to the discrediting of it because to spread it throughout the lower and middle classes, they kind of had to simplify it. And they also mixed it a little bit with physiognomy that I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh So they were kind of muddying the waters. And by muddying the waters, people were like, this probably isn't legitimate science because Mm -hmm. it's not that clear. And it was also claimed to promote materialism and atheism, which also hurt its credibility in the time. Hmm. Yes. And also, at some point, it kind of came to be lumped in. Ah, uh, <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> With uh, palm reading and stuff. Oh, so yeah. carnival it's, shows. It's not a science. It's and, and more like. charlatans yeah, yeah. and stuff like that would be like, I'll read your palm, but I'll also touch your head. I'll touch <laughs> the bumps on your head. I may feel your bumps. If you give me an extra five bucks, hey. <laughs> Then, and that was even into the late 1800s that that was kind of like a fringe Mm. carnival thing. Mm -hmm. So it had kind of a resurgence in the 20th century, so the 1900s, but it was more fringe at that point. And there's a special shout out to Paul Bouts, who used phrenology to study pedagogy or how knowledge is imparted in an educational context. Hmm. And he combined phrenology with typology, like personality tests, and graphology, (gasps) yes, to make psychognomy. (laughs) Stupid words abound in this podcast. (laughs) 
This is dumb. There's a lot of dumb words here. Oh, I love how they make up so, words. Psychognomy. Psychognomy. <laughs> but of course, what we know about the brain today has made this even more clearly like a crack of shit. So with things like MRIs, we know that that's not how the brain works. We know that the brain is one homogenous organ that just has a lot of functions. It's not like separate pieces that you can just sort of take out and rearrange or something. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, phrenology has been used for evil. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. So, Europeans who were looking for a scientific basis for their racism saw phrenology as a nice way to justify that they were better than lesser races. Oh. Yeah. And even late, I mean, this extended to even, like, the Rwanda crisis where Mm. the Hutus and Tutsis, I don't think that's how you say that word, because that's, like, the rolls and the pops. Tutsis? Tootsies. I don't know how you say that. But there there were, like, phrenologists were saying, ah, yes, because of how one of these groups, how their heads are formed, they are more superior to the other group. Ugh. Yeah. So That's it's, not good. It's pretty bad. Yeah. It was also used for sexism, because of course it was. <laughs> and women whose heads were, like, larger in the back and they had lower foreheads were said to have smaller mental organs for the arts and sciences. And they were said that the larger organs in the back were for care of children and for religion and stuff. So it's basically like, quote unquote, biological evidence for women should stay in the house and Mm. do house things. On the bright side, let's look at the bright side. Give me a bright side, baby. Bright side. Phrenology led to a study of the mind that would eventually discredit phrenology itself. But it contributed to the development of things like anthropology, forensic medicine, Mm. uh, knowledge of the nervous system, brain anatomy, as well as the contributing to applied psychology. So even though phrenology started where it is and kind of discredited itself along the way, it branched onto several people looking at different things that did lead to legitimate sciences Mm -hmm. and that had a play in that. So we're going to be charitable and we're going to say that phrenology was not all bad and that it did have some good going forward in history. Specifically, it had sort of this roundabout effect on the prison system where this theory that people are who they are and their brains are how they are led to this theory that punishment wouldn't be able to actually change criminals. So it sort of had a hand in leading to a reform over punishment approach that's good yeah so they were like well if these people have a big (laughs) murder organ (laughs) stealing organ (laughs) double parking organ i don't know criminal organ criminal organ then we'll teach them how to channel that into something else which Mm. is we've kind of talked about a little bit in that like antisocial personality disorder that part of the treatment for that is using that in a productive way choosing to do good things with it exactly like okay if you don't have empathy then let's use it for for good instead of evil basically Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what they what they were saying as well so it did lead to this a little bit of a reform of the prison system Hmm. which is good okay now the fun part let's talk about method (laughs) let's talk about what phrenology actually looked like okay so Okay, you are. You are you are gonna read? Are you gonna you read the my, bumps no, on my we're head? We're a little bit far apart for oh. me to do that, unfortunately. I, I've got some but, really interesting. But let's bumps. use our imaginations, our okay. big imagination organs in the back of our. <laughs> <laughs> so you're my client. You uh-huh. sit in front of me. 
I run my fingers and my palms all over your head and I feel for where there's like bumps, like enlargements or indentations in your head. I wish y'all could see Anna doing this I'm with her hands right now. A little, <laughs> I'm doing your phonologist motion. She would actually be great at being a phonologist. <laughs> <laughs> She's ready. So, I've been practicing. <laughs> On myself. I was going to say, your poor husband probably is. <laughs> come here, come here. i got to read the bumps on your head. See if you have a good marriage organ. <laughs> oh Sometimes my. they would use tape measures to take measurements of heads, um, like overall head size. And sometimes they would use a craniometer, which is like a special version of a caliper. Uh, like, I'm picturing like a compass, like okay. in math. But that's basically to say, like, the relative size of, like, bumps and enlargements in your head is important, I guess. I don't know. Uh-huh. So Franz Joseph Gall, like I said, had 27 individual organs that determined personality, each of which was located under a certain area of the skull. He actually had a single-sheet phrenological map um, oh. that he gave, like, the names and locations of the organs, and he would sell them for a cent each. So, like, the people that came to his lectures and stuff, he would sell them for a cent then later charts sold for more because they were more expansive so like like i said when people added more areas to the brain they would upcharge a little bit so other areas and descriptions were added by later phrenologists to their maps that they Mm. sold so using these measurements and the placements of the bumps and indents the phrenologists would compare this knowledge to their knowledge of location of mental organs which they would then use to determine the strengths and weaknesses of individual traits in a person Hmm. So, enlarged organs, oink, (laughs) (laughs) meant that the patient used that trait more and that they were better at it. Uh And I have a genuine phrenology map. Really? Yes, that I got from Wikipedia. (laughs) And (laughs) it has 35 areas in it. Hmm. So I'm going to try, I'm going to do this. You're going to be able to see me making motions, but I'm going to hope that I can describe it in a way that the listeners can follow along as well. I get a front row seat. Yeah. So okay. let's like put your put your finger right behind your ear, or your right ear, and that is alimentiveness. I don't know what that means. <laughs> behind your right ear. It. There's quite a lump there. Oh, is there? Does that mean I'm something bad? <laughs> Does everybody have a big lump there? Oh my God, there? you're going to love this. Alimentiveness is the desire to eat. Amen <laughs> to that, sister. Well, we just proved phrenology right now. Oh man, we proved it. We're going back. I take back everything I said. So that behind your, behind your right ear is uh, the desire to eat. Alimentiveness. Hmm. Okay. So, okay, so then if you put your finger like right in the middle, like the top of your head. That is veneration. That is your respect to people. Hmm. It's veneration. Uh, right right above your nose, like the bridge of your nose. Oh, I forgot that you could go on your face too. Oh yeah. There's okay. like it goes like it goes like all around your eyes, like the the top of your eyes. It goes like that's where it starts and it goes all the way down the back of your head. Which is, it all covers around. the entire expanse. So the right at the top of the bridge of your nose is area twenty two and that's individuality. So if you've got like a big bump there, I guess you're very individual. Do you have one? You probably do. No, I don't. My head's not very bumpy. It's kind of boring. <laughs> I have a very average Well, it's kind of hard to know like when you're feeling your own head, like is that a bump or is that yeah. just 
I mean, I think somebody else would have to hold. I don't think you could do it for yourself very much. No, I don't think much. you could self-diagnose your phrenological. You know, this kind of reminds me of that emotional tapping thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When you do the tapping. Tapping all over On different face. parts. Uh-huh. I'm trying to find. So that's kind of at the bridge of your nose. Right above that is an area called eventuality. I don't know what that means. Hmm. I'm trying to find things that are like easy to tell you where it is. Is there one like at the very base of your skull like that? Uh, so yeah. So like if you put your hands kind of at the base of your skull, so like right below your ears, like on the back of your head, uh-huh. uh, that's amativeness. We really do need a camera I know. to be showing how we're doing this, poking our own heads. Thing. Oh, amativeness is uh, feelings of sexual desire. Oh my. So if you look at the back of the base of your skull. Ooh, I big got a big old bump back. Hey, <laughs> lusty, lusty girl. That's what you are. And then right, so like if I you like kind of put. I like to eat and I like sex, I guess. If apparently. you kind of put your finger like right at the, at the like back back of your skull like above your ear line a little bit Mm -hmm. uh that is philoprogenitiveness which is the care for your children so like i said this is the area that people would like feel on women's heads maybe that's my bump maybe (laughs) i'm either lusty or i care for my kids i'm I'm lusty and therefore i have children and i (laughs) do maybe that's it it. maybe that's why they're Mm -hmm. so close but that's where people would feel and be like, ah, yes, the women have bigger philoprogenitive organs so they can care mm. for the kids. And, mm. and men have bigger arts and science organs and so they can do jobs. <laughs> it's dumb. With their big arts their and big science organs. organs. <laughs> so do you have any questions about phrenology? Wow. <laughs> so does anybody actually still use this um, now? No. I'd be willing to bet that you could find someone. I would say it's probably still in the, like, I'll read your palm and also your head bumps, uh-huh. like, area. I, I would say it's probably fringe to that extent. But just what we know about the brain has discredited so much of it that I don't think anyone actually legitimately practices it anymore. But it wasn't like use like, you know how you see those charts, uh, for kind of like acupressure charts for yeah. your hands and your feet? It wasn't used for, like, that kind of stuff, no. right? It was more to study... No, it was about the physical brain. Yeah. I mean, it was about, like, the physical parts of the... Hmm. Like, I mean, the whole theory of it is, like, I'm saying, like, oh, that's area two, that's area ten, you mm-hmm. know? That's because, like, area ten was a specific organ that was right. part of the bigger organ. And if you took out area ten, you just wouldn't be able to do that thing anymore. So if I, like, reached back and took out area two that's philoprogenitiveness, you just wouldn't care about your kids anymore. That was the, that was the theory behind it. That's weird. Yeah, that it was so localized. Like Whenever that. you say area, something I always think of that place where the spacecraft crashed. Area fifty one. Yeah. <laughs> that we're gonna that we're gonna raid in, yeah. in a few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think of. But I think it's interesting though, because when you said the thing about you know. We did use some of this stuff to grow in in yeah, this and this and sure. this. And, and that's something we always kind of come back to, that some of these things sound pretty wacky and everything. And they are. And they, they're pretty wacky. <laughs> they're pretty wacky. And yet some good comes out of it. Right. Because that's how we grow and that's how we learn. And you got to start somewhere. And usually it's kind of wacky where you start. Yeah. I mean, when you're going from nothing, when you're right. going from a basis of not knowing anything. Right then any kind of theory you have almost seems credible because we have no idea if it's wrong. I mean, a huge part of science is something called falsifiability, which is where we're able to prove it wrong. 
And so right. if you're not able to prove it wrong because you don't have the methods, if someone's saying like the bumps in our head and the and the and the, the the brain is different parts, you're not able to say like, well, I don't know, that's not right. right. <laughs> so it Let's might be start right. there. <laughs> we'll start there. <laughs> you know, it's it's just like I guess. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Why not? Until we're able to say like, no, we know that's not how it is. Mm-hmm. But we have to have the courage to say, I got this idea. Yeah, and that's why might I be think, a little crazy. Like, but... You mentioned our our first episode about Sigmund Freud in that, and we talked a lot about that during that episode. That he was one of the first people to do a lot of the psychology theories that he brought up. And now that we know that those are falsifiable, now that we know that that's kind of nonsense, a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff he talked about. But he was the first one, and he was the pioneer in that, and he was you know bringing up a lot of stuff that hadn't been brought up. Mm-hmm. So now we can look at it and say, like, that's nonsense. We know that's not true, and we sort of make fun of him for it. But at the time, it was very ingenious and very... But at least he had the courage to step up and say, this is what I think. Sure. Yeah. We should all have the courage to step up and say, this is what I think. that's why we named our podcast after him. (laughs) Because we love you, Sigmund. We love him. You weirdo. (laughs) So the ologies... The ologies. This is not going to be our last ology episode. Oh no, sure. there are many ologies. There's out there. Uh, like I like I said, like physiognomy. I think could be a whole thing yeah. on its own. I want to have some kind of like Bonnie, or but I had to put Sykes before Psych. Psych Bonnieology. Yeah, something like that. That's <laughs> <We'll> workshopping. <laughs> what? What do you want it to be about? I don't know yet. Oh, okay. I, we'll figure. I'm it gonna out. think on that. Okay. We'll I want to. I want to create something new. That'll be fun. A, a new ology. I'll be, I'll be interested to see what your ology is. <laughs> you know I can do it. All right. Do and you want to thank the people for listening? I would like to thank the people for listening. Thank you, Sipsters, for being with us again for our podcast. And we hope that you laughed along with us a little bit today, maybe had a beverage with us. And we hope that you'll join us next time. We're hopefully back to our regular programming, so we will hopefully be releasing things that are more more to our regular standards instead of kind of the weird stuff we've been doing before. No, actually, all our stuff is weird. All our stuff is weird in a different way. <laughs> in, a, it's true. in a more lighthearted way. So, yes, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all by the name Freudian Sips Pod, as well as our site, FreudianSipsPod.com, and I will be adding a merch section to the site that will take you to our merch store and you can find our merch store specifically on teespring at 40 and sips i can't wait to get one of those t-shirts are so cool they are very cool and i've heard they are very comfy from other people who use teespring so very excited if you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us, FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com, or you can just send us messages on Twitter and Instagram. Like I said, whenever we get those messages, it just makes our day, makes it our does. week. Please remember to leave us a nice rating interview wherever you can do that, uh, wherever you're listening. If you want to pop over to iTunes, leave us a nice rating. If you want to leave us a bad rating, then we're not Freudian Sips Pod. We're some, <laughs> other, we're some other podcast. Our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. Mm-hmm.